You know, if you want to have an impact in this era, more than ever, you've you got to make yourself vulnerable. There's no way to have an impact in the context of this culture right now. And every once in a while, it's important that, that we remind ourselves of this. For example, I so treasure what Levi and Cammie and Drew just did with the band as their backdrop because, you know, they just throw themselves out there, don't they? They throw themselves out there. And just treasure that because... That is a really risky thing to do uh, in a church. It just The uh, track coach told his pole vaulter, son, throw your heart over the pole and the rest of you will follow. And do you not treasure how our artists throw their heart over the pole? They, do, they throw their heart out there and I just treasure that. And that's why it just seems like every week somebody says, why do I start crying when I hear some of these songs? And it's part of it's because it's the interface of heart that's happening um, well, I, you know, one of the, we have this unbelievable leadership engine that is happening as a crow flies, literally a few hundred yards away from us. What Ryan Hawk is doing with the leader, Learning Leaders Show and that podcast is world class. And this past Thursday and Friday, I got to participate with a bunch of other guys and gals in his workshop. And at that workshop, uh, Greg Meredith asked the question to list the top five career achievements you've had. And the first thing that came to my mind was I'll never forget the day when it was solidified that we were going to be building wells in Africa. Because you know, when you lead a church, it's such an a unfinished project all the time. I don't know if you know, you're in the middle of an experiment that's been going on for 28 years. You know, for, I mean, this is, this, is, this is an experiment. Did you know that you're a guinea pig in an experiment? But it never finished, feels finished. But, but I remember that day, like, my life matters. I'm a part of a place where people are drinking water in Africa. And, and you don't, may not know this, they know about this Southbrook place on the other side of the world. And that's when I just thought, oh, man, God, I would have been playing softball eight nights a week if it wasn't for you. And here's what you do. You know, you took that wasted life and you made it useful. I'm a part of this. Well, look at this picture. This is from our ministry partner, Crossroads Missions. They mostly do reconstruction and, and such when there have been tragedies in certain areas, but they also do some other work. And we fund thousands and thousands of dollars into their ministry, uh, Southbrook does. And because of, uh, look at that picture again, because of you, Southbrook, and your generosity, what that is happening. And here's what that is. In Piedras Negras, Mexico, which is right across the border from San Antonio, a place where some of you have been because we sent teams there, we are reaching over 1,800 children who are going daily to Christian schools as well as our support for special needs children in a special needs home. There is a neighboring community center that has been built that allows Christian workers and leaders from all over the city to reach that city of 300,000 with the love of Christ. And because it's a border town, Piedras Negras has been overrun with refugees from Venezuela and some African countries who are trying to seek political asylum. And the stories are heart-wrenching, but there are teachers in place because you have been generous. There are people in place because you've been generous. I'm just going to go out on a limb and bet you didn't know you did that, did you? Now, you're a part of that. 
If you've given $1 to this mission, you are a part of that. God is no one's debtor. He keeps good records. And he knows you're a part of that. Did you just have a water well in Africa moment? You go, I'm a part of something that's making an impact way beyond me. So let's do a big yay God for what, how God's using us, right? Right now in Piedras Negras, Mexico. Um, to reach, to reach people who are easily dehumanized and uh, make and humanize their needs and their being. And it's just really awesome. Uh, so we just do that right now because we are committed to making sure that if you get nothing out of being with us every hour of every week, that you leave going, my life matters, my life matters, my life matters, my impact matters, you are a part of it. And we want to every week tell these stories of what you're doing in Dayton and the rest of the world. So thank you for that. We're going to pass out the bags that are just an expression of our worship of generosity and our investment in bringing up there, down here in Dayton, in Piedras Negras, and, and all over the world. And we thank you for being a part of that. Now, some business. number of you, over a thousand, registered for the Enneagram class that was online the first launching of the Growth Institute. A week from this Friday, November 8th, and then Saturday, November 9th, is the follow-up workshop, the Enneagram workshop. Take a look at this on the screens. November 8th and 9th, and Friday night, November 8th, 6 to 9, Saturday morning at 9 o'clock to 4 in the afternoon. And this will be a workshop to help you take the next step toward wholeness in reclaiming the person God made you to be. And the reason I would highly, highly encourage you to be a part of this is this. Selfishly, I know I and we as the leadership, we need an inventory of who do we have. So we need to know who are the ones, who are the twos, who are the threes. Who, what do we have as an inventory of our people? This Enneagram is so much a part of our tribal speak now. Now we need to know what, what do we have for example, in an initiative that we want to launch next year that is about breaking Southbrook down into our cities, we want to know, for example, we, we've got to have twos, threes, and sevens to do that. We've got to have people that are put into place to make that happen, twos, threes, and sevens, among others, but those, those three types. And so we need to know. So if you could, we'd love for you to carve out that time, November 8th and 9th, for the Enneagram follow-up workshop here in the small theater, if you register by November 1st, it's $50. That covers your breakfast and lunch. And if you do it after November 1st, it's $65. So you can save 15 bucks by registering this week. One of the things I've said throughout this series, today is part three of our series uh, on, on how to be a perfect Christian. And so by the end of this series, you're going to learn how to be perfect. No, obviously it's very facetious, this title, and, and by the way, you'll see why we intentionally put the, the title of the series in front of our church building, and not as some random church building, but our church building, you'll see why today. But one of the reasons is, is there's that you are sitting in a perfect, perfect position to grow the disease of perfectionism in your life. You are at a church that is in the suburbs. It is a, you are sitting in the middle of the Petri dish of perfectionism. Church, suburbs, right? I mean, it's just, it is, it is perfectly utilized for you to be diseased. 
that's why we're doing this series. And um, a writer by the name of David Getz has written extensively on this kind of stuff. And he writes about the time an acquaintance of his was diagnosed with cancer. And during the first week of chemo treatment, the husband of that wife dutifully shouldered the additional load of home. He trucked the kids to all their sporting and other afternoon events. The stress of an uncertain future and managing the entire family schedule along with trying to run his small business unraveled him emotionally. Weeks before, he had promised to substitute coach for his elementary school daughter's soccer team. David Getz writes these words. In this newly defined reality, the elementary age girls' soccer game took on increasing insignificance. He noticed midway through the game, this husband did, that one of the players had vanished from the sidelines. Later he learned why. The parents, upset that he had played their daughter too little, had packed up their soccer chairs and stormed home. Now, he thought he had rotated all the players through. And he said, I didn't say much to my wife when she called later for damage control. David Getz concludes, soccer is stupid when you think your wife is dying of cancer. The pettiness of suburban living can shock you sometimes, even enrage you. You are sitting in a Petri dish for perfectionism. And one of all the things that we're talking about, about this disease of the soul called perfectionism, is that it misses what's most important in life. You miss life. You know, you miss life. Soccer is stupid when you think your wife is dying of cancer. Now, football is not stupid, okay? So, so I just want to be aware of that. That's, that's, if that were football, no, we, I wouldn't have shared that illustration, actually. Um, but it is so easy to miss what life is about, isn't it? In the perfect land of perfect lawns and perfect looks, we miss the core issues of life. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack one truth. Now, I know some of you are still in recovery from religion and church, so you sometimes equate a message quality based on how many scripture verses were embedded in it. Uh, By that measurement, Jesus' sermons weren't very good because he usually just told stories. Today's not one of those days where you're going to have a lot of scripture. I'm going to pull out one scripture, and I want to then spend the rest of our time unpacking the truths embedded in that, particularly in one line. It comes from the brother of Jesus James's letter. Look at what he says in James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. This is a church. It's good to confess. Everybody say that sentence with me, will you? Out loud and with vigor. We all stumble in many ways. We're going to unpack that. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect. How many of you have sinned with your mouth in the last hour, let alone the last day or the last week? You know the truth. And if you can keep your mouth under control, you're able to keep your whole body in check. Look at how this reads in the Message Bible. Don't be in any rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest standards, and none of us is perfectly qualified. 
Now, we're going to unpack something that's embedded there that we just said together. There are three truths with that that I want you to see. Number one, number one truth, people who teach the Bible have a really hard job, be nice to them, or God will twist your ankle. Okay? Let's just unpack that truth the rest of the day. Let's just, I just, that's, that's a little self-serving, isn't it? Okay, number two, here it is. The world at large is watching and critiquing. When he says you who teach will be judged more strictly, he's not talking about God, although God may. He's talking about when you lead, you better, you better live a life of appropriation, if not perfection sometimes. I mean, you're going to get picked apart if you put yourself out there at all. And this is true of our world more than ever. Just listen to talk radio for five minutes and you go, whoo, man, do we live in a critical world. If you lead, any of those who are leaders know that you can't be perfect and no one expects you to be perfect, but whenever you put everyone together, you better be close to perfect, right? Like when you put everyone together, like if I disappoint you in this, you're okay, but not this. But if I disappoint them in this, they're okay, but not this. And so when you put everyone together, if you lead, whoo, you get to find out real quick. You're like, leadership's not for sissies, man. You better know this reality. You're under the microscope all the time. Now, look at this third one. And this is what I want us to unpack. The most effective Christian. Now, you know around here, we're not, we use that word a lot. We use Christ follower because the word Christian has just been drained of its meaning. The interesting thing is the word Christian is not something the Christians call themselves. That was, a, that was a, a term of insult. It literally means little Christ. So back in that day, Christians didn't call themselves Christians. The, 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 their enemies did. The little Christ. So this world that's very critical is looking at the little Christ and the best you can be. Here's the best you can be. It's going to be when you are a grace-fueled, and I don't know who t- coined this term, but I got it from Stephen Guy's, imperfectionist. Living in the reality of when you're at your best, you're rumbling, bumbling, and stumbling. When you're at your best, you're still going to stumble. How many of you have ever tried to be so virtuous, and in that you messed up? Right? So when we're at our best, we're still broken. We still mess things up. And so the, the most effective Christ follower, Christian, lives in this authentic reality of Not perfectionism, which is the unreasonable standard of anything less than perfect is unacceptable. I don't live in that. I live in this, a grace-fueled, I'm broken but accepted by God, imperfectionism that actually makes me more effective than if I tried to be perfect. And today, we're going to unpack that. We're going to unpack that. We're going to say, okay, what does that look like? What does it not look like? And why must we, you know, how then shall we live? This is how we then shall live. Because one of the reasons many of you are here is because the idea that a Christian is a rule-based perfectionist is really unappealing to most of us. How many of you are drawn to people because you know how broken they are and it just, you just so identify with them? You know, I, always, I, used, I used to play golf a lot. I don't so much anymore. But if somebody would come in after a round of golf and say, oh, I hit it flawlessly. Nobody wanted to talk to that person. But they say, yeah, I hit it out of bounds on 16. Did you? Yeah, I hit it out of bounds there too. That was really, and there was this bonding that happened over our foul balls. Well, this is what bonds people. 
It is a grace-fueled imperfectionist reality, not a rule-fueled competition of who keeps the rules better. Who keeps them more effectively? There's a writer by the name of David Garland who said this, the religious pietist can become like an ill-taught piano student who plays all the right notes but fails to make music. Like an actor in a B-movie who woodenly recites a memorized script but who does not carry any conviction. Or like a dancer who carefully counts the steps but never cuts loose to dance. A fondness for negatives and a long checklist of rules, particularly for other people, can make the life of faith a burdensome ordeal that never sings nor exalts. And religious duties an obstacle course that weeds out weakling sinners. If I sound angry, I apologize, but I've seen what that kind of religion does to people. It weeds out people. Because what religion is for many churches, and ours can be there so fast, it'll make your head spin. Faster than you can say imperfectionist three times, we can become this is it becomes, religion becomes just perfectionism in a three-piece suit with a leather Bible under its arm. And this just becomes another context to look perfect and be perfect and act the act and play the game. And this is what makes me very angry because I see what this does to people. How it weeds out people. And this is what made Jesus turn over tables. This is what made Jesus angry. But the world, he didn't come and die so that he could establish another place where this aura of perfectionism exists, where you will be a perfect person and you will act like a, per, a perfect way. You will keep our rules and you will present this facade of you are the, you are the embodiment of our community. And that's not why he came. He came to start a place that if this is not where broken people are celebrated, then where, where, where then shall we live? The other reality of this is you just have to, you have to embrace that, that, that perfectionism is this critical construct that rigidifies and conforms behavior to this constantly unreasonable standard. So every time you fail, it just embeds, I'm not good enough, I'll try harder, and you fail, and I'm not good enough, I'll try harder. So it just, it's just this why we're so many of us are fatigued. But here's what imperfectionism is not. Because if you're a perfectionist like me in recovery, you think then the in binary Western terms, well, if I'm not a perfectionist, that means I'm lazy. So to recover from my perfectionism, I got to be lazy. I got to lower my standards. I got to have contentment with failure. And I just make mistake, 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 mistake. I have no interest in excellence and improvement. And I am apathetic. Boy, am I in recovery from perfectionism. Frank Layden, the old coach, said he had a player one time. He just couldn't get through to him. Just couldn't get, the, couldn't get the guy to really play hard. And he said, son, what is it with you, ignorance or apathy? And, and, the, and the kid said, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> so he's in recovery from perfectionism, right? No. That's actually another shield of pseudo-safety to just quit. I don't care. That's why when you see a student who quits, a lot of times it's just, I can't win this game, I'm just going to quit. Well, they're no healthier than if they'd have stayed in the game. They just found another way to create pseudo-safety. 
So some of you know that the tension, <clears throat> excuse me, in this series is, wait a minute, I, I, I operate on people for a living. I land planes for a living. I can't be sloppy, right? I can't just say, yep, I'm landing eight out of 10 planes safely. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Some of you have seen it. It is a brilliant ad campaign that AT&T has going on right now called Just Okay is Not Okay. Look at a couple of these. Have you ever worked for Dr. Francis? Oh, yeah. He's okay. Just okay? Guess who just got reinstated? Well, not officially. Nervous? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. I'll see you in there. Just okay is not okay. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Phil, are you guys good with brakes? We're okay. Just okay? We got a saying here. The brakes don't stop it, something will. That's not a real saying. It is around here. I wrote it. Just okay is not okay. So and many of you know, I mean, you, you, the, the, the option where we're going to land this, this plane in two weeks is on then what is excellent. That you don't have an option. I mean, you have to be excellent in your work. And we want you who operate on people and fix breaks to be excellent in your work, do we not? And so you have to understand what imperfectionism is not. Look at a couple of these statements. Imperfectionism is pursuing and doing the best things in life without hoping for, let alone expecting that the only acceptable standard is perfection all the time. Okay, so the, the problem with perfectionism is not perfection. Perfection is a great thing. Does anybody here want to, I want to eat perfect chocolate chip cookies, don't you? I, you know, I, I, I want a perfect pilot yeah, in that regard. But that's not the problem. The problem is that becomes the only acceptable standard and then it bleeds into the rest of my life. Look at this one. Imperfectionism means prioritizing doing over doing well. It took me, I remember where I was sitting in South Carolina where I heard this statement. As a recovering perfectionist, I didn't buy it at first, and some of you may not. That is, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Wait a minute, that can't be. If it's not, if you can't do it perfectly, it's not worth doing. No. If it's worth your time and effort, it's worth not doing it well at first. And over time, you start to get it, right? So some of you look at me as a, a teacher of the Bible. Right? You hope that I have uh, some level of competence in understanding the Bible. You, you, you hope that. And, and I remember when I gave my life to Christ in 1982 and I surrendered. And then I happened to start dating this girl named Sherry Young right about that same time. And, and, I, and after the first or second date, I thought, this, this is the one. I think I told her on our second date, we will be married someday. That's which. Probably had something to do with why she didn't want to keep dating for a while. But the, I remember writing her a love card, like a love note. And I remember as a new Bible reader, writing this part from Proverbs chapter 3 down and utterly taking it out of its context, I, I committed heresy on a love note. Okay, so, so this, it was, it was like, I look back at that now and go, oh my gosh, did I butcher the context of that for my own purposes? I committed heresy on a love note with the Bible. And today I do, I, I, do, I teach the Bible for a living. Now, I, I got to tell you, the love note worked. 
Okay, I'm just going to tell you. I've been married to that girl for 34 years now. It worked, okay? So God uses us in spite of our heresies sometimes. But if, if you say, I don't know the Bible. I, I, some of you have these backgrounds of religion. You're like, oh, don't read the Bible if you can't do it right. Really? What if you just, what if you start reading the Bible wrong? Might that lead you to reading the Bible correctly? Read one verse a day? Just start reading that? You might commit heresy. Guess what? God's not going to wring his hands in heaven and say, Jim is committing heresy. No, I, you start where you are. Uh, imperfections understand that doing, praying one minute a day is better than not praying at all, even if you screw it up. Even if God is laughing in heaven going, can you believe what this turkey is praying today? Just start there. It's worth doing. It's worth doing poorly. Imperfectionism does not rule out doing things well. It only takes away the crippling fear of not doing it well. Remember, perfectionism is deadly in part because it is not about success. It is about the fear of what failure symbolizes in my worth and value. That's why it's powerful. And imperfectionism that is grace-fueled takes away that fear of not doing it well. And as a matter of fact, imperfectionism will bring you closer to perfection than perfection will bring you close. Perfectionism will bring you to perfection. Here's why. Studies have been done on this. Carol Dweck has done this most extensively at Stanford University. She told about a writing assignment that demonstrated that perfectionistic students performed considerably worse than those students who didn't feel like their whole future was riding on the outcome of this test. I mean, have you ever go, man, I study well, but then when I test, I don't test well. You know what that is? That's the fear of failure. And we now know, neurologically, brains that have this fear of failure don't function as well as brains that realize, I'm grace-based, uh, this is important, I've studied, I've got to trust my studying, I've got to trust my training, and now put it on the line. Right? And oh, by the way, how many of you know now that that biology final, that was the whole thing of your world when you were junior high school, wasn't actually the whole world? How, do any of you uh, possibly know that now? Yeah, and you know, accepting imperfection does not mean thinking, oh, okay, Charlie, unfortunately, if I have to live this way, if I have to live this way, I will. But you don't get it. This is the only way to live because the, the perfectionism, you never, never, ever really live. And if you will look, if you will look around you, not just at people, but how things in life work, how, work, how reality works, you'll see this process that imperfectionism is actually what makes things beautiful. It's actually that process that leads us to embrace reality. Uh, I don't know that I've I've done a wedding the last 30 years where I didn't say this. When the groom t goes to take, put the ring that he has for his bride with that big diamond on it onto her finger, uh, every time I, I'll do this, I'll say now. This ring, every time you look at, her on, uh, look at it on her finger, I want you to remember this. A diamond is just a piece of coal that stayed on the job. That's all it is. At one time, I said, I'll say, this, this diamond set you back a little bit, didn't it? And go, oh, yeah, yeah, it set me back a little bit. And, and I'll say, you know, at one time, this was just a mass of carbon, ugly mass. 
But over time and with pressure, it was forged into the most famous rock in the world. And even now, it's not perfect. It's valuable because it, it was a process of imperfection. That as a result of time and pressure, now it's become this valuable thing. If you could have printed this out on a 3D printer, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be valuable, would it? What makes things beautiful are the process of imperfection. That's why God says to you, he says, now you, all of you, I will cause all things to work together for the good to those who love me, been called according to, to my purposes. I will conform you to the image of my son. I, I will take the rough carbon, imperfect carbon reality of your life. You, you, let, you, you just base your life on my grace. I will take your imperfectionism and even your imperfect realities will be part of the way that people look at you and go, boy, that's beautiful what God does. Isn't that beautiful what God does? Look what he's forging. I graduated with her. Look what God did. I graduated with him. Look what God did. And thinking of yourself as that diamond in process actually sets you free and it'll make you even more effective as a Christ-following, grace-based, imperfectionistic fill-in-the-blank. Here are the benefits of imperfectionism. See if any of these, you say, I checked two of these. Boy, would I love to have this. Reduce false expectations. So remember, perfectionism is a mirage. It's not real. There's false expectations. You can, never, you can never reach it. Number two, greater results. Your brain actually functions better. We constantly teach our students it's about flow, not force. If you parents ever tell your child, Play harder. Well, maybe they need to play harder, but playing harder is not the solution for Jimmy. Most kids are trying too hard. They need to flow, not force. And greater results. Number three is positive action, not negative reaction, but positive action. But look at these two fearlessness and confidence. Now, could you imagine if you changed over to a grace fueled imperfectionist? And your life embodies this fearlessness. You're not always living in fear of what, what failure symbolizes about your worth and value. And then you have a new confidence to put yourself out there. And even though you're a diamond in process, you're not ashamed of the imperfections of some of your cut. Because it's God's deal, not yours. How that would change your life. I have seen this happen in people's lives so much Almost to the extent that the people who lived with them said, where is my husband and what have you done with him? Where's my dad and what have you done with him? This, this grace-fueled reality, once it clicks in, you go, really? Because at the end of the day, perfectionists are trying to survive. But imperfectionists are living to thrive. That's the difference. Perfectionists are saying, I hope people will reciprocate back into the empty cup of my self-worth and hopefully validate my self-worth by my perfect results, whereas imperfectionists live, my cup runneth over. I'm drinking from the saucer, and I hope his grace spills onto other people around me. Which do you want? Which reality do you want? Do you know you have the capacity to choose this? To live your life out of the center of a grace fuel. 
I so want high school students to get this because they're living in a world that is ultra critical. They on average see 3,000 advertisements a day. Do you know that? The average high school student sees 3,000 advertisements a day and they all say, you are so wonderful, you don't need to change at all. Is that what they say? They say, you're not fat, you're not slim, slim enough, you're too fat, you're not tall enough, you're too short, you're not smart enough, you're, you're not in a lot. They're all telling them. All those ads are saying, if you buy our product, you'll be enough. And all, all the time, it just builds this, can I survive this? Or what's this reality that all the big stuff's taken care of? It's all taken care of. Not in spite of my brokenness, but because of my brokenness. And it just changes life. I know that because I'm a perfectionist in recovery from that. I was sitting down a while back and I thought about this, uh, uh, <laughs> reading about snake oil. I don't know what I got. Have you been doing any reading on snake oil lately? Yeah. <laughs> Well, this, this is, this, I asked Rita to get this for her. I said, get, can you give me a bottle of snake oil? I want to show something. This is one of the things that was so true of my life when I was not in recovery from the shame of imperfection. And, and this, is, this is snake oil. I'm just curious. How many of you use snake oil regularly? There was one person in the last service that used snake oil regularly. If it has to do with snakes, I'm not using it. I don't know about you, but I'm not wearing snake boots. I'm not wearing anything snake. I don't know no snakes. And uh, this snake oil is interesting because when I say snake oil salesman, what do you think of? Fake, disingenuous. You know why? It's because back in the day, when, when the, there were some benefits discovered about snake oil, Snake oil salesmen were people who tried to over-communicate its benefits. Like if you take snake oil, they'd go around, and if you buy this snake oil, way overpriced, but if you buy this snake oil, it will cure this, and it'll cure this, and they oversold its benefit. They oversold it. And so as a result, the idea of the snake oil salesman became synonymous with disingenuous. And one of the things that hit me about this is that perfectionism is seen in people who try to oversell themselves. We try to compensate for what we perceive are our inadequacies, and so perfectionists try too hard. They try too hard. Coming in a Christian setting, it exacerbates that if you don't understand grace. It'll make it worse. So many churches, you know churches don't fail because they don't try hard enough? Churches fail because they try too hard. Just row, try too hard. I'm always on the lookout for that. Are we trying too hard? Or are we making this accessible? And so we, we, this is synonymous with that. And it's a great day when you realize, I don't have to oversell myself. That's the very thing that makes you seem fake. We think that this person's hiding something. And usually shame-based people think they're hiding something from themselves and other people. They're not really hiding it from anyone and it's a great day when you realize I don't need to I don't need to oversell as a matter of fact people who are really great are the people who undersell they downplay their greatness they don't you know 
We're drawn to people like that who, who don't try to constantly say, hey, I'm capable here, I'm capable here, I'm capable here. I was thinking, this, I was thinking about this in light of this liberating day. Maybe today this day is for you where you go, oh, I just, okay, I, I'm finally given in to this. But I sat down a while back and for me I wrote these words. And hopefully they're helpful to you. These pivot points. That imperfectionists care less about results. They care more about effort. Their product is not as important as their process. Imperfectionists care less about problems. They care more about making progress despite those problems. Imperfectionists care less about what other people think. They care more about who you want to be and what you want to do. Imperfectionists care less about doing it right. They care more about doing it. Imperfectionists care less about failure. They care more about finishing. Imperfectionists care less about timing. They care more about the task, the joy of that. Imperfectionists care less about guilt. They care more about grace. And that last line embodies where you will have shifted from religion to a relationship with Christ based on grace. Is when your life doesn't operate on guilt and fear, it operates on grace and freedom. And this is a great day if that's your day. Because it's amazing grace that saved, say it with me, a wretch like me. It's a great day. I was in a meeting with my dear friend Ron Lance this week, and he told a story that just, I caught chills when he told this story. I'd never heard anything like this. And he was in on a deer hunting trip in Saskatchewan, Canada in December. It was 50 degrees below zero. I said, you paid money to go there in December. <laughs> and he said he stayed in the family home of a Cree Indian family. Cree Indians came over from Russia and settled there in Saskatchewan, Canada. The man's name was Clarence. He had wife and three children, one of whom, the youngest, was a little girl so severely handicapped from birth that she was unable to speak or move her body at all. She was in a locked, that locked syndrome and confined to a wheelchair her whole life. And Clarence, Ron, I said, Ron, write this story down and send it to me, will you? He said, Clarence and his family had little to nothing to make, to, little to nothing in their makeshift trailer but lived a life of abundance as they ranched buffalo and lived off the land. Being a guest in their home for seven days ended up being more of a blessing than any hunting trip I had ever been on or probably will ever be on. We went to town on a Wednesday night, a town on the reservation there in the middle of Saskatchewan, and this restaurant ended up being a gas station attached to a grocery store attached to a bar and restaurant. When Clarence, his entire family, including me, arrived, we went into the restaurant, and to my surprise, I watched something unfold that will stick with me the rest of my life. When we all walked in, the entire restaurant stood to their feet, young and old, got in a single file, and came over to greet Clarence's little girl with kisses and hugs, and then greet Clarence and his wife and two other children. I couldn't believe this was happening, and I asked Clarence about what had happened later. I asked him. 
He smiled and explained that the Cree Indians believe that like the American Indian, the white buffalo is a sacred gift. But above that, the Cree Indian believe that a physically challenged child is truly a gift from God and they are to be honored and treated as such their entire life. Now, who would not want to live in a community like that? It just honors that brokenness. And I tell that story with all sensitivity to the difficulty those of you who have physically challenged and mentally challenged children in your home. But this, this story is a picture of us. It's a picture of us. I don't know, if you're like me, when Ron was telling that story, I naturally thought of the story of Mephibosheth, didn't you? Didn't you just think of the story of Mephibosheth? Of course not. It's amazing. So he's telling this story, and I'm going, oh my gosh, this is Mephibosheth. And in 1 Samuel 20, we're introduced to this character. He was the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. David becomes king. And when you become king, you eliminate all the family members of the previous regime because they could be a threat to you. But one time when little Mephibosheth, his name means out of the mouth of shame. When he is uh, five years of age, his nurse, when they're running from the Philistines, his nurse drops him so severely injures his ankles that he is crippled. He cannot walk. And they take him. David is in power now, and they take him to this city, this town called Lodibar. Just think of this little town in Nowheresville, Arizona, who doesn't even have a stoplight with just dust balls everywhere. I mean, just nowhere. That he might find refuge from the possibility that David would eliminate him. But in reality, he's exiled. David, who makes a promise if there are ever any leftovers from the house of Saul, I will bless them. He makes a promise. He finds out about Mephibosheth. He has Mephibosheth brought to the palace. Now imagine Mephibosheth. He doesn't know. He thinks he's bringing me here to eliminate me. I'm the last of King Saul's family left. And he come, brings him in and he says, Mephibosheth, you are my son and you will always eat at my table. You will always eat at my table. And I remember where I was when I heard a sermon one time called, I am Mephibosheth. Sin has crippled me. It has exiled me. But the king has adopted me and brought me to his table. One time Jesus told a story. Go into the streets and bring in the lame that they may celebrate with me and have dinner with me. And you are Mephibosheth. So just because it's meaningful and because I want to see you pronounce Mephibosheth, turn to the person next to you and say, I am Mephibosheth. Okay, just say that. All right, I am Mephibosheth. Don't you wish his name was Jim or Tom? All right, so here's the deal. You are out of the mouth of shame. You that's what sin does. It shames us. Oh, I've got to make up. That's why perfectionism is all about salvation. It is about I've got to fill in the cracks. I've got to fill in the gaps. I've got to learn to walk on my own. I got to, and, and then you realize in life, 
that sin has exiled you and it has broken you. Are you kidding me? The king has invited me to his table. But not just to his table, he's adopted me as his son and daughter. That's the truest thing about you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Say it with me. That saved a wretch like me. That saved a wretch like me. I once was crippled. I once was exiled. But now I'm found. You see, the reason perfectionism doesn't work is it's just another law. You'll never fulfill it. But when you say, as of today, I live my life out of a center of grace-fueled reality, the big stuff's taken care of, I sit at the table of the king, and he is my father. This changes everything. You see, I may have to oversell this. I don't have to oversell what this symbolizes. What this symbolizes is amazing grace. And I've seen it. I've seen it take it broken wretches and say, I'm free now. I'm free. I am made in the image of his grace. And I'm going to live that out. And I'm going to pursue the good things in life. And I'm going to do good things in my life. Because amazing grace saved a wretch like me. I'm going to invite you right now to take some time this morning to take in the symbol by his blood and his body, the symbol of his grace to you. And would you spend a few minutes eating with your king? Deal? Let's pray. Father, now as uh, we venture out, may we live this week celebrating brokenness. Celebrating brokenness. When the person at the Starbucks drive through window messes up our order, we're going to come up there and we're going to celebrate brokenness and imperfection, God. We're, we're going to be a people who say, God, this world's broken. I celebrate that because you know what? Imperfection brings me closer to the reality of grace. That's right, grace. That is our fuel for who we are and how we live. And now we celebrate that in the name of the one who poured himself out for us. His name is Jesus. And everybody said, amen. See you next week, everybody, for part four.